Glasgow is a magnificent city, said McAlpin. Why do we hardly ever notice that? Because nobody imagines living there. Think of Florence, Paris, London, New York. Nobody visiting them for the first time is a stranger because he's already visited them in paintings, novels, history books and films. But if a city hasn't been used by an artist, not even the inhabitants live there imaginatively. So Shanghai is of course a city that has an awful lot of literature and there's a whole genre uh, called the Shanghai School or Haipai, which is definitely a good example of artists using a city for people who consume their art to live there imaginatively. But in this episode, we're going to be thinking beyond just the domestic uh, consumers of Haipai and thinking about a particular new book coming out in translation into English with a collection of stories all set in Shanghai. And it is The Book of Shanghai brought to us by Comma Press of Manchester. And here on the episode to talk with me about that book is Karen Wang, the editor of the book. Should be, well, I, I, I say should be, I've already had this interview, so I know it was, a, as always, a really good chat. And there's all sorts of interesting things related to Shanghai that we talked about. So if you're looking for talk about little gems of Shanghai, like Suzhou Creek, Suzhou He, or if you want to hear about the fruit shops, little fruit shops of Shanghai and what they've got to do with the very first market reforms in communist China. That's there for you. Or if you're curious to hear about theory of mind, the dissolving of consciousness and desperate attempts to survive death through the power of words and books, well, that's in the book of Shanghai too, or at least our conversation about the book of Shanghai involved those things. So a very interesting chat lies ahead. But first, before all that, we're going to do the Trichific News. Trichific, by the way, that's the name of the podcast, if you're a new listener, translated Chinese fiction podcast. So the first little item in the Trichific News is really something. It's a Chinese language article, so if you cannot read Chinese, you may wish to use your auto-translate to read this one. But basically, it's an article written by Pornhub's very first Chinese language translator. So I'm not going to go into um, the specifics there, but if you think you want to read that, there will be a link to that in the show notes, the show description. Now, on to more serious news topics. Uh, two other articles that I want to call attention to. The second one is an account from Gregory Lee of his um, time in China in the run-up to what happened in Tiananmen, obviously the, the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre, and his interactions with some of the misty poets who um, were, I suppose, intimately involved one way or another with those events that led up to the Tiananmen Square massacre and what came after. Um, Gregory Lee, um, he's an interesting figure because I'm living near St Andrews right now, and not so long ago, um, a job was advertised for St Andrews' new, I think a new department of Chinese studies. And Gregory Lee's the guy that bagged the job. So that's all he was to me, uh, plus a name on Twitter. Um, so this this article is me, like my first encounter with his writing. And yeah, not only is it a fascinating kind of insider account of 
really interesting time, uh, momentous time in 1980s China. Um, it's also very well written, and there's some really cool pictures there too. So that's worth a read. That's up on um, Asian Cha. Uh, again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But um, if you want to Google search it, uh, the title of the article is Tiananmen Lives of the Poets by Gregory Lee, and it's up on Cha, an Asian literary journal. So asiancha.com slash WP slash article slash lives dash of dash the dash poets slash if you wanted the URL. News item number three, like I said, it's another article. And this one's on kind of a May the 4th theme. So May the 4th has passed us. Um, if you've not listened to previous shows or if you didn't know, that's a, that's the significance of May the 4th globally is not just all about Star Wars and May the 4th be with you. That's a really big date for, um, I guess, modern China and Chinese literature because that's when the protest happened that kicked off the May the 4th movement. And the May the 4th movement has been talked about on the show a few times. But most, most of all, on the two episodes we've devoted to Lushun, and this article is all about Lushun. It's called The Revolutionary, and it's up on commonwheelmagazine.org. And it's kind of all about the different ways that the figure of Lushun has been um, understood or used by various um, people, be it in academia or be it the Chinese government itself. So um, it's an interesting read. It's, it's pretty short. The Gregory Lee article is a long one. This one is a very quick read, but yeah, it's also good. And there'll also be a link to it in the show notes. Now, our last piece of news is not about something that has happened at the time of recording, but something that is coming up soon. So I'm planning about a week after this episode goes up online to migrate this podcast's feed from a SoundCloud, SoundCloud to Podbean. So hopefully you guys shouldn't experience any disruption. You should notice uh, better kind of uh, better formatted show descriptions. Uh, every show that I put up will have a page, like a proper web page generated. I'll be able to kind of use Podbean as the podcast site as well, which should be great. Um, but if you guys experience any like disruption in your feed, if you have any problems, then please do contact me because that'll be useful for me to know. So yeah, it's it's a piece of good news, but um, also a heads up in case there's any disruption. There shouldn't be, but you know, always be prepared. So yeah, that's all the Trichofic news. Let's charge on and listen to my chat with Karen Wang about the Book of Shanghai. So I'm on the show with Karen Wang, the editor of the Book of Shanghai, and it's pretty exciting for me because I don't think we've ever had a books editor on the show before. We've only ever had like authors, translators, but now we've got an editor as a guest. So really exciting. Karen, uh, how are you doing? You having a good day? Yes, thank you, Angus. Thank you for um, having me. Um, yes, we obviously working from home, as everyone does in the UK. And uh, so, yes, it's a kind of standard day where we... Uh, or I do my uh, university work, and uh, now I'm talking to you. Yep. Um, my day's been kind of similar, and I'm also in lockdown a little bit further north than yourself. Um, so can you tell the listeners and me a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. Um, I work at the University of Manchester, and uh, I work at the Confucius Institute, and I've been working at the university for over 20 years. Um, obviously moved around, and I worked in the business school, 
international office and uh, um, now I'm part of the School of Arts, Languages and Culture. Um, I came to live in the UK in 1996, so um, I've been living here for a long time and I moved to Manchester in 1998. So I've seen the changes of the city. I think now Manchester is becoming very exciting and mm. uh, uh, especially the cultural scenes and uh, you know, two years ago, we were given the UNESCO City of Literature. And for the last uh, 12, 13 years, we have the Manchester Literature Festival. And also we have a home cinema, and which is, again, you know, a lot of international programs. So it's a really exciting city to live in. Yeah, absolutely. It was um, where mm. I did my undergraduate degree. And the um, predecessor to home cinema, uh, the Corner House, was one of my favorite places. And I think the only time as an adult I've ever had anything I wrote published in um, like a book was by a Manchester organization. It was a collection of um, speculative fiction writers. So Manchester is pretty close in my heart too. Um, I, do, <laughs> do I have anything else to say about Manchester? I don't think so, but it's just, it's just cool to have someone who's resident there on the show. Our book for this episode is The Book of Shanghai from Common Press, a Manchester publisher. Um, can you tell the listeners and also myself, because I'm quite curious, how you came to be involved with Comma Press and the Book of Shanghai? Hmm. Yeah, again, I think it goes back to the uh, Manchester Literature Festival. So for the last 12 years, uh, we have been inviting Chinese writers, both from China and the UK based, to come to the Literature Festival and it's through these regular activities I got to know uh, Comma Press because sometimes uh, we decide who to invite and who organize the interviews. And uh, so I think um, one year they were in the process of publishing their um, China book called Shichen. And uh, that's how we got involved in very limited way. So, um, so over the years, I've been in regular contact with Ra, uh, who set up the Comma Press, as far as I understand. And uh, mm. so I think about two years ago, and I sort of said to Ra, I said, uh, would you be interested in publishing a, a book of Chinese cities? Because I know Comma Press is known for their like a city reading series. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, um, and I think he showed interest and it didn't take us very long to decide on the city of Shanghai. Uh, right. I think, you know, um, yeah. So that, that's how we get started. That's interesting. We, we might come later back to the question of why Shanghai. Um, mm. But you, you mentioned that they have other like city readers series. And it's it's just funny how some things happen either by coincidence or you see you, there are some things you only see when you know to look for them. Because just recently I was on Amazon. I don't think I was looking for any like books related to China at all, but the like the Amazon algorithm was suggesting, you know, it always shows you suggested things you might like. And mm -hmm. the book of Tokyo from Comma Press came up and mm -hmm. I, th I think maybe didn't recognize it by its title first. I recognized it by its cover because it's got a, like mm -hmm. a similar cover design to the Book of Shanghai. Uh, mm -hmm. Book of Shanghai has the Shanghai skyline with a nice kind of deep purple color. Uh, the Book of Tokyo has, I, I don't know what the Tokyo skyline looks like, but I guess the Tokyo skyline and it's more of like a cherry blossom pink sort of color. 
So right away I thought, oh, that's a funny thing because in a few days I'm going to be talking on my podcast about Book of Shanghai. Um, so yeah, I guess now I'll ask you, why was Shanghai such an obvious choice for yourself and Ra for like a Chinese city to do a series, uh, a, a book in their city series on? Yeah, um, I, I think uh, for me is, you know, any books, I think you need to have a readership. So I think, you know, Shanghai is probably the most international city in China. There are so many visitors, um, especially business visitors and tourists. So I think, you know, that that's not a, a difficult kind of uh, a decision. But most importantly, I think it's because um, it's a city I'm familiar with. I think, you know, for your first book, if you you choose a, a place which you know very little about. And I think, you know, that's a, a little bit uh, scary. So for me, I think, uh, at least I think I know the city. Although at that time, I wasn't quite sure how we go about, you know, finding the, the, the local editors who can, you know, really have that uh, view in terms of what is happening. But I just feel, yeah, this is the city I want to, uh, a book and then people can just discover the city in a much more kind of kind of accessible way because there's so much figures and images published about Shanghai but it feels so distant and I hope this story will give people that kind of more city life I guess that that's why we choose Shanghai yeah I mean, I can understand what you're saying about feeling a little nervous or unsure how to capture Shanghai in just one little collection of short stories. Mm. I spent two and a half years there and I was trying very hard in my, well, I was, I was trying to have fun, but the way I was largely trying to have fun was exploring the city, not just like the famous central areas, but all these little little places in the kind of outside the first ring road and even outside the second ring road because it's such an amazing fascinating city there's um so much going on i don't know if you've ever heard of uh, fomo f-o-m-o fear of missing out have you heard of that FOMO. before yeah it's like an acronym for the feeling you feel when you're worried that you're missing on something else going on and okay no I, yeah, this time. yeah yeah fomo and i mm. felt like as someone who likes to explore a city i had permanent FOMO in Shanghai it felt like somewhere mm -hmm. I could maybe live a decade and never completely understand or capture mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's interesting yeah I, I think you know um, yes I'm not originally from Shanghai and I think you know uh, and the time I sort of lived Shanghai few I understand it I think uh, uh, at that time it's require language skills and now maybe it's a slightly different but mm. i think there's some kind of stats and saying i read it uh it says you know the kind of uh foreign residents in shanghai it's almost like a one percent and it's huge you right. know like uh, uh it's one resident out of a hundred is not a chinese so uh, you know, uh, it's unbelievable scale, even yeah, right. uh, uh, for, for, for Chinese cities. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, I mean, in a, in a country like the UK, a 1% foreign population wouldn't seem like a big deal. Mm -hmm. And even like statistically, 1% isn't 
maybe it doesn't sound huge even in Shanghai's context, but you have to remember the population, or I'm sure I don't have to remind you, but I have to remind myself, um, the population of Shanghai is so huge that even 1% of that huge population is a massive number. So yeah, you're, you're totally right. It's something that makes it stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned earlier about um, working on with Ra on the City series, and I asked a slightly cheeky question to the Comma Press Twitter account. I'm not sure if that's Ra or someone else using it, but when I learned that they had this other book, Shuchong, and I guess an older book about different Chinese cities, I asked um, whoever's running that Twitter account for Comma Press, are we maybe going to see the book of Hangzhou, the book of Kunming, the book of Tianjin? This was before I knew they had books about like Tokyo and other cities. You, I mean, this is a cheeky question to ask you as well, but do you think we might ever see the book of Beijing or other Chinese cities? Um, yes, I think, you know, um, after I think a, a couple of months into the book of Shanghai um, project, I think we decided it, we probably want to make it a China series because there are so many other interesting cities, you know, uh, yes. we can do. And uh, I, I think, you know, for me, uh, kind of as uh, the series editor, my main consideration is, one, I still, for any book to be published, I want there's a reasonable size of readership. So I think it, it needs to kind of um, enough interest uh, among the readers and the people who want to know the city. So I think that's one consideration. Uh, and the second, I think, is to really see if that city has that kind of um, very strong, like a literary tradition, you know, something, you know, over the years, there has been, you know, writers. And uh, although I know every city, there are active writers, yeah. but whether that had tradition, I think that's also important. And I guess the, uh, the final one is because China is so huge, and uh, obviously it can be a project for decades, <laughs> you know, we can just go city by city, but yeah. in the sort of uh, 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 sort of the next couple of years, I think to give it a, a good geographic coverage, uh, probably it, it's important. I think uh, um, you know I'm from Hangzhou, so I'm the like to a book of Hangzhou. Oh. But to some extent, Hangzhou and Shanghai has a lot of you know similarity in terms right. of the, the the Jiangnan culture, if right. you like. So yeah. I think you know yes there long tradition of writing in Hangzhou, but I would say if I have to have a second book, I think, you know, it will need to be something probably rather distinctive and different. So I would be thinking, you know, uh, maybe very much in the south or very much in the north. So, and then we can slightly kind of, you know, choose cities which are interesting. Um, so we haven't decided anything, but we certainly uh, start to think about it. Um, yeah, so that's what my current thinking is. Does yeah. that answer your question? That's a really good answer. Um, my my very lazy marketing brain is imagining the book of Chengdu with just a great big panda on the cover, but maybe maybe that's not what you want to do. Uh, we'll see, you know. It's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see, yeah. It's nice to know um, you're from Hangzhou because uh, I've I mentioned this on the show before, but um, the place I lived my first year in China was in Zhejiang in uh, 
Duching near Mogansan. And uh-huh. it was just a small town, and I had mm-hmm. uh, other foreign friends and Chinese friends in Hangzhou. Mm-hmm. And you could ride on, you could ride a bus to Hangzhou for just twelve kwai. So I was mm-hmm. in Hangzhou not every weekend, but almost every weekend. So mm-hmm. probably along with Shanghai, those are the two cities that are strongly uh, written into my memory of living in China. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess like you said, it's a little bit too similar to justify. It being the second book, but yeah, I think we've talked enough about the potential of a series. Now we could maybe zoom in on the book itself. Yeah. So since we're covering an entire collection of short stories this time round, I'm going to try a, a similar approach I did last time. I was talking about a collection of short stories on the show. I was talking to the sci-fi author Xia Jia. Um, about her collection, A Summer Beyond Your Reach. Just like I did that time around, I'm not going to try and talk about every single story because we'd be here forever. Um, just going mm-hmm. to ask you about four this time. And for every story, I've got uh, two questions. Before I ask those questions, I would like to ask if you can maybe like introduce the story uh, to the listeners and describe the plot, and then we can get into the interesting questions about them. So are you, are you ready to give that a try? Yes, I'll give it a try. <laughs> awesome.、Um, that's what I'm doing every single episode. I'm just giving it a try.、Um, mm-hmm. So our first of the four stories is Afang's lamp. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about Afang's lamp? Okay. Yes. So、um, this is a story about、um, the protagonist who, over the years, noticed the change of a very unnamed street. And、uh, also the changes of people's life. It started with、uh, um, noticing a fruit store was opened, and then this lady who was selling the fruits to passersby. There are lots of detailed descriptions of the street and the person, and then her families got involved in you know running this. Fruit store, and then over the years, I think you know, noticed the changes in that、uh, fruit seller Afang's life. You know, Afang has a baby and has a, a toddler, and、uh, so yes, it is a really、uh, small story. But I guess you know, it 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 it's about a change in people's life. That, that's my reading.、Mm-hmm. And this story is by Wang Anyi, an author who's.、Um... Resident in Shanghai, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. She's uh, uh, my favorite writers, or one of my favorite writers, and、uh, yeah, she always write about Shanghai and、uh, you know、um, the very life of ordinary people living in the city. Yeah. So my first question about Afang's lamp was that the story is very early in the collection. It's in the I forget if it's the very first story, but it's very early in the book. And although it's quite、mm. small, not necessarily in its length, but like the scale of the story is small. It's not a big epic、mm. adventure. It's not about anything really violent or crazy. It's quite small in its scale, quite zoomed in.、Mm. Despite all that, this one stuck with me,、um, maybe because it struck a chord and some of my own memories of. Some fruit shops. I remember walking past in some different parts of Shanghai. So the question I want to ask is just: Did did the story stick really strongly in your memory too? Uh, yes. I I think you know um a, a fruit store as you said you know you pass one when you live there, and when I lived in Shanghai, 
I passed one as well. Mm. And uh, although in the whole story, there's no mention of where it is in Shanghai, uh, it is uh, a very just common street. It could be any street in any part of Shanghai. And there's no indication of time, you know. But I, I guess, you know, from the setting, the way it is written, I think this story is most likely happens in the mid-1980s. Right. And that's probably the reason why it is the first of the collection. So, but you probably lived there a lot later, but you still can relate to mm. it. So it can be timeless. But when I read it, I think it is something, I think, you know, in the mid-1980s, and that's happened to be the time I live in Shanghai. I went, right. you know, to study there. And, uh, uh, and the, the reason why I think the setting is in the 1980s is I think, you know, that's kind of China just opened up and then right. the economy has transitioned or in the transition from everything state planned to kind of individuals, you can have small economic activities. So individuals are allowed to set up a, a small fruit store. And uh, especially if Afang, I, I guess, you know, she's not necessarily from Shanghai or mm. certainly not from the city of Shanghai. It could be from uh, the suburbs or the, uh, other neighboring provinces and married into the family. So, you know, she hasn't got a job and she wants to support herself. So running a fruit store is uh, probably, you know, a feasible way for her to do so. So I think, you know, that that's uh, the, the, the settings. And I think... Uh, uh, Wang Ai, um, she's very good at uh, sort of writing about those uh, kind of we might call it working class kind of uh, characters and uh, small uh, kind of individuals in the big cities. And, uh, uh, and I think uh, it's so important at that time uh, for the city because uh, it kind of, you know, people can buy things which is not rationed and, uh, you know, it's kind of, and also um, it changed people's life, you know, just by running a fruit store, not only Afan's life, but also, you know, um, the life of, of the mother and son who, um, yeah. you know, the author believed they were in a very poor state. And then this young lady came along and the life changes. That's yeah. how I feel, yeah. You mentioned earlier about how 1% of Shanghai, uh, the Shanghai population today is foreigners, so people like myself when I was mm. living there. But maybe even more interesting is, so when people talk about a migrant worker in the context of mm. China, didn't mean people like me coming in to teach English or do business or whatever. It would mean people from, I guess, usually rural areas or less wealthy provinces going to big places like Shanghai. Um, I never, like in my first year in China, in the small town, I never, I don't think I heard much or ever learned the term migrant worker. But very soon after moving to Shanghai, I learned about, not just about migrant workers, but like the interesting population demographic of Shanghai that I think most of the people who live there are from elsewhere. They're not from a Shanghai family. And I guess, like you said yourself, when you were living there, um, 
So it's, it's um, I, I don't think I really have a question with that one. That's just something that sprung into my head when you mentioned that these people are from mm. outside. Um, it also reminded me of someone who I saw every day at work. He was a librarian at the school I was at, and he was from like a long term, like a family who had lived in Shanghai for generations and generations. And he was quite proud of it. I don't remember seeing any stories in this collection that really went into that. I kind of got the feeling that every character in all the stories in the book might not mm. have been there for that long. I don't know if I'm right about that. Yeah, I think, you know, Shanghai, it is a city of migrants. I think, you know, it started with the sort of neighboring provinces like Zhejiang and the Jiangsu. And then, you know, sort of, you know, over the history of the city development and, uh, you know, from all of China. So I, I think uh, um, that, that probably makes uh, the city uh, interesting, you know, both sometimes, you know, uh, a long time people say, oh, Shanghai is really exclusive, you know, you always feel you're outsiders. And, uh, but at the same time, I feel it's also very inclusive, you know, sort of you including everyone uh, who kind of embrace the city and be part of the city. And uh, so I think it, it, it is uh, uh, kind of, you know, maybe contradictory itself, but um, it is, uh, uh, I guess, you know, uh, about migrants' lives and how we make the city as it is. And that's probably why uh, we have chosen a lot of stories who may, may you know, like a show they uh, they are more kind of more transient, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that, how both things, although they seem to be opposite, can, are, are true at the same time. Uh, the other question I wanted to ask you, kind of related, also uh, not a, a fairly simple question, just about your experiences. Mm. So uh, from my memory, living in the UK, I've never formed an attachment or a relationship with a shopkeeper because most shops I've gone to even if it's a small shop, are owned as part of a big chain or they employ other people. There's maybe only been one or two shops I've gone to regularly that are like owned by a family who I've seen often, but not. it's not been a big enough part of my life that I have any memories of interacting with those people. But um, I can think of a few different shops in Shanghai where I was able to, uh, the, I would walk in and the shopkeeper would remember me and we'd exchange some like simple um, Chinese. So I just wanted to ask you if there's any one shop, a fruit shop or some other shop that uh, during your time in 1980 Shanghai, you were a regular customer who had some kind of like a, mm -hmm. I don't know if friendship is the right word or even if relationship is the right word, mm -hmm. but you had some kind of a bond with the shopkeeper. Do you have any memories like that? Definitely. Yes. Um, uh, I lived on campus and uh, I remember uh, we have this uh, like a little convenience shop and uh, the guy who runs the shop, everyone knows him. And I think, you know, yes, you kind of go in, have a chat and they know about you. It's a very sort of, you know, a close um, community, I think, you know, especially on campus. Um, there are not many choices or there are many shops you can go. And uh, now I think on campus, you, you also have a convenience shop, but because now it's all supermarket style, so you go and pick your own stuff. Whereas mm. at that time, 
you have to say to the shop owner, say, I want that, I want this. And so there's so much interaction. And uh, so, yes, I do remember. And I think another thing is, again, reflect in the story is because these shops are owned by individuals, and they know custom service is really important, you know. It's not like a, a state-run, you know, stores or shops. I remember when I first arrived in Shanghai and the fruits are scarce and they you sometimes get, you know, by apples and they're rotten. And because there's not enough, they can always sell. So they don't really need to give you any custom service. Whereas <laughs> Afeng, you know, she, she sort of want to please the customer but she's not imposing not like a, you know really aggressive so she always can sense you're coming you might have a need and she will subtly suggest you have this and that and and, and that's i think you know custom service and that's when individual economic activity takes place that's what you get and, and that's how mm. your shop owner remembers you because they they want to um you know you to be their regular customer, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's reminded me a little bit of when you mentioned living on campus. Oh, I don't know if you can hear it. Can you hear that plane flying over my head? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's happened a few times in past episodes. I live really near an RAF uh, airbase, Lucas Airbase in oh, Scotland. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm sure the listeners enjoyed that. The plane seems to be flying <laughs> away now. Um, I'll just keep uh, asking this question. So um, I was in Shanghai, I was uh, most of the time, I was living on a campus as well at the school I was teaching at. So there was a street that had most of the shops I'd regularly go to. And one of them was a little convenience shop where I'd often get um, a drink, whether it's a soft drink or some beer, it was a place to go. And the shopkeeper, I think sometimes it would usually be uh, the husband of this family. Sometimes it would be the wife. And once or twice, I think I got served by like the teenage son of the family. Um, mm-hmm. But the guy especially, he tried really hard. Um, he, you, you would see him um, hanging out with other shopkeepers who live next door. Um, if a lot of the foreign teachers from the school um, bought like beer or something from him, he would put seats out on the pavement and he would try and turn his little shop into a, a, a bar. And that, uh, I mean, that, you can't do that in the UK. I think it would be illegal, but even if you could... Um, I'd never seen customer service like that. A guy who's just so kind of laid back in a way. Mm, mm. But at the same time, very responsive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not laid back mm. in, a, in a negative way. Kind of mm, friend, friendly. Mm. I think friendly is the word I'm looking for. Yes, yeah, yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, so that's Afang's lamp. Um, mm. Here's our next little story. It's the story of Aming. So who's this story by? And what would you say it's about? Yeah, so the story of Armin um, actually is my favorite of these collections. Um, it is written by Wang Zhanghe. Before, I've never heard of her. Right. And uh, I think uh, the, the reason I like it is uh, one is uh, the, 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 the story you know, itself. And the second is uh, she actually, I read the most Chinese version because uh, our selection process and we got the Chinese version uh, and mm. I read through it and uh, I really like the Shanghai dialect coming through the original text so you can immediately tell this is a, a story from a Shanghainese someone who lived in Shanghai because even Shanghai dialect 
It's a not necessarily a written language, but there are certain words people use. And so that come across very strongly and very vividly capture that kind of spirit of Shanghai, and which I right. enjoy. And then later on, obviously, I uh, uh, discovered, you know, she's the youngest writer of all the uh, uh, writers in this collection. She's in her 20s. So that makes me really excited in terms of uh, people in their 20s, they observe lives on a very kind of micro levels. And, uh, but through these uh, uh, stories, they, they tell the Shanghai story. So what this story um, is about, I need to go back to what the story <laughs> is about. So it, it's, uh, it's the only one which has uh, like a little uh, nine sections. Um, uh, most of the short stories is uh, kind of one whole passage or one whole story, but uh, if follow the Chinese kind of episode, uh, mm. uh, so it's nine sections uh, in, in it. And uh, um, it started when, you know, uh, Armin was found uh, in the rubbish bin. And uh, so, uh, and then it sort of traces back how her life has changed from uh, a, a, a very neat, nice, sensible lady living in this uh, nice apartment to her current state of uh, basically, you know, living on the rubbish, hoarding the stuff or scavenging uh, things she can sell. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's a story about uh, uh, this uh, arming old lady, the deterioration from a sensible person to someone everyone want to keep distance away from. So that that's what the gist of the story. Yeah, it's interesting. You you mentioned that it, it uses um, it's got some of the Shanghainese um, local language on the page because um, I didn't know that when I was reading. But I, now that you mentioned that, I can remember some kind of like interesting informal English language being used in the story. So if I go back to read this one, I'll, I'll watch out for that and see if I can kind of, I don't know what the right way to describe this, but sometimes when I'm reading something translated um, from Chinese, I'm trying, if it, maybe, maybe if, I'm, um, if I'm not totally focused on the story, my my little very limited, my like, how can I say this? My HSK1 or HSK2 um, Mandarin reading brain will try and see through and guess what the Chinese might have been. And usually I can't guess because my Chinese isn't that good. But if I see some of the informal language, I sometimes wonder, is that because mm. the Chinese was informal or were they using some like context specific phrase? So yeah, you've given me given me an interesting thing to look for there, and I guess the translator's mm. done a good job. Um, mm. But what I wanted to ask you, well, there's a lot of things I could ask you about the story. There's, there's also, I mean, I gosh, where where even to begin? Um, I guess I could just ask you if this one was your favorite. Um, what made it your favorite? Um, I I think you know there's a lot said about Shanghai. I think you know through the stories and uh, um, it's uh, you know rubbish. I mean, if people get the chance to read it, it's you know. I mean, obviously, live on kind of you know uh, activities relating to kind of collecting rubbish, sorting them out, and all that. And then um, then 
it, the story is set against uh, this big estate she lives in, and then you know the very first um, chapter is all about people hate that rubbish smell, which sort of you know disperse into everyone's household because uh, summer hot days and the rubbish sort of left uh, overnight and the sort of you know fermented and all that. And that has always been the city of Shanghai. I think, you know, um, as much as we liked all the glamorous part of it, but I think, you know, the day-to-day life is, has a lot to do with producing rubbish and how to clear the rubbish. And I right. remember I used to live on one of the uh, 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 lanes in Shanghai, you know, the local residents. And the... Uh, we don't have rubbish bins. It's always communal rubbish bins. And, right. you know, people take the rubbish out and uh, throw it there. And everyone tries to throw it from a distance because it's always very smelly. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and it is, you know, uh, a job really for uh, people, probably the lowest of the lowest uh, class to do, you know, People don't have that respect for people collecting rubbish. And uh, I think here you just see it as a, a job, you know. But in mm-hmm. Shanghai, it is something which is really looked down upon. And uh, um, so I think uh, that, that has been the tradition. And that even now, people live in this beautiful estate, um, you know, buildings, but still, you know, that community beings. Uh, which everyone threw the rubbish, everyone tried to keep away from it. Everyone think it should be someone else's job to keep it clean and keep the environment clear uh, 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 Mm. nice. And I think that hasn't changed. So I see this is uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, something sort of a continuity of the city, you know, how people see the rubbish and how see it as part of their life and uh, how see the people who collect the rubbish. And that I think the translator did a good job and they called it the rubbish man, you know, the mm. person who come around to do the rounds of collection rubbish from these things. And, uh, you know, obviously the author does not give a specific name and uh, it's just someone who collects the rubbish. And then the translator called the rubbish man in <laughs> To some extent, in China, uh, in Shanghai, I mean, probably whoever does this job is considered a rubbish job, you know. <laughs> right. Mm. Mm. It's um, something that I again didn't think about living in small town China, in the small town in Zhejiang Province I was living in, and then even in Shanghai, I got a little more accustomed to how waste is dealt with but I didn't really kind of wake up to just how different it is from my life in Scotland and the UK until I was I I, I did a kind of very naive foreigner in China sort of thing I was asking people foreign teachers and Chinese teachers in the school I was in how can I get my things recycled maybe we can collect it somewhere and no one really had a direct answer on what to do and then I think finally one of the Chinese staff told me actually the um the like the the workers on the, so like not not the teachers not even the IT people but like the 
the Shufus and Ayis who were, were working on this huge campus in their uniforms were taking, were, were handling the trash. They were the ones that were sorting it. And this wasn't as part of their job. This was a way for them to get some side income. Mm-hmm. So me as a naive foreigner trying to set up some recycling, I would be, you know, damaging their income. And because mm-hmm. it's kind of an embarrassing or sensitive thing to talk about, I had mm-hmm. to really kind of chase it before someone would tell me it's better if you don't interfere because these people aren't paid very much as it is. And as a, as a naive foreigner, it had to be spelled out to me. But it's, um, it's just another world away from what I was used to. True. Uh, and I think, you know, and also in that kind of chain of labours, um, you know, there are different roles. So you, you, you will have people who, like a, a cleaner, and when they clean the buildings, you know, people throw out the rubbish and that they will see cardboard, newspapers and tins and cans. So they kind of will separate them and put them into pile. Then they can sell onto a peddler who usually ride a bicycle and who will call on the estates regularly, say, you know, who has got these things and the uh, and then you can sell it on for some income, some directly from household. Like my parents, they still collect all the newspapers. And then like uh, whenever they got enough pile, they called, they ring this guy and then that person come and they will weigh the newspaper and give them some money. So I think, you know, if you grown up with this, you, you will always do it. But younger generation, I think, and they just can't be bothered and they just throw out so the cleaners get the chance to collect them and sell onto the peddler. And then the peddler, when they collect loads of these and they send to uh, uh, like a, a waste management centers and they can sell on. So it's like a chain of labors. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, all people get a little bit income from this. And uh, so, yeah, that, this is how it works. So, uh, and to me, it's, uh, I think, you know, China has been doing uh, recycling um, quite well um, until uh, uh, last year, I think 2019. It's a big thing. Uh, Shanghai is the uh, a pioneering city of uh, sorting rubbish according to probably not exactly the Western way, but now uh, they start to have bins where you put in specific recycling uh, materials into it. So that was the uh, only introduced um, last year, I think, and Shanghai is the first city they try out. And then uh, the, also they have much more specific, like uh, recycling policies. Mm. Yeah. So it's, that, that's how things kind of evolve. But I think uh, this story, certainly, you know, uh, Armin is one of those ladies who put it at the very bottom of the, the chain and who collected and then sell on uh, to the sort of all the peddlers, and, and then she can get some income to subsidize, not herself, but actually her son, you know, her grandchild. So it's a very traditional kind of, you know, often the, the elder generation supporting the younger ones, so hoping they have a better life. And uh, mm. yeah, so that, that's uh, um, how it works. <laughs> Right. Um, it's a funny thing. I never thought I might have been someone who was really interested and would be getting some kind of um, mental stimulation reading about or learning about waste management. But um, I guess it's 
because my focus has been so much on modern China, I keep mm-hmm. seem to keep bumping into it. Um, first, there was Chen Fan's Waste Tide novel uh, mm-hmm. I covered on this show, which kind of deals with uh, e-waste. And mm-hmm. I heard him talk about his kind of like field research into Guiyu, the town that used to process e-waste. And it was mm-hmm. fascinating. And um, around the same time I read this story, I also did a little bit of uh, freelance proofreading. I proofread an essay by a Chinese, I think a master's or PhD student, a, a postgrad anyway, writing on uh, metal, like metal waste management and recycling uh, in in Zhejiang, actually. I think in Taizhou. Taizhou is, I've, I've learned, a huge center for dealing with metal waste. And this uh, paper I uh, helped um, um, proofread was all about impacts of new policies. I think policies that have come around the same time as these new waste like recycling policies in Shanghai. So uh, I I don't really have a question. Just I just want to say it's way more interesting than I could have ever have expected it to be, and also a reminder of what a lucky or different life I'm living here in the or upbringing I had here in the UK, where all the waste management was much, much further from me and my nose and my home. Yeah, um, I guess we've probably talked about um, waste management enough. Let's go on to our, our third story. This one's uh, Suzhou River. And this is one I could easily have a, a very strong guess at the Chinese title. I guess it would be Suzhou He, right? Mm, yeah. So for listeners who are not so familiar with Shanghai, this mm. isn't a story set in Suzhou. Uh, this is a little small river that goes through Shanghai and it's quite a important one in Shanghai. So um, Karen, could you tell us who this story is by and what it's about? Mm. Yeah, so this is a story about this young man who suddenly finds himself surrounded by overflowing water from Suzhou River and then it's about his planned meeting with this lady on the bridge. So it's uh, sort of feels like happens between a dream and the reality. It shifts sort of between a very, uh, uh, whether he's in a dream or it's a reality. And uh, um, but I, uh, what I find interesting is this, some characters appeared as she, as he sort of, you know, uh, floats around the Sudri River. And uh, so there's a mention of this European man and this uh, Sikh doorman and the uh, mm. old lady he come across. And uh, um, again, you know, I feel this is certainly, you know, a, a modern story, but uh, the story itself, it's uh, more like a continuation of Shanghai from the 1930s, you know, you will probably right. easily come across a European man, a Sikh kind of doorman, and these are like a roles they play in the history of Shanghai, and that's kind of a stereotype, if you like. Right. So, yeah. Um, but I'll let readers to read uh, more about it. Mm. Yeah, so um, the significance of the Sikh doorman, this is something, again, I would never have guessed before I went to Shanghai, but as soon as it was explained to me, it made sense. So if I understand this correctly, in the uh, international settlement of colonial Shanghai, um, mm-hmm. that, that part 
I think that's modern Huangpu district that was uh, run by the Americans and also the British. But I, if I'm if I'm remembering right, the British were probably more in charge than the the U.S. Um, mm. administration or whatever you would call it. And this wasn't just Britain as we know it today. This was the British Empire, and mm. the British Empire had a fairly like obviously the the quote unquote crown in the uh, the jewel in the crown of the British Empire was India, but the Sikhs, the Sikh population of India, had a f- pretty good relationship with the imperial, well, the British Empire. So, mm-hmm. one way that manifested was in Shanghai. A lot of the British police force um, were were Sikhs, so mm-hmm. they're fairly ingrained in the memory of the the people who who lived there. That there were these mm-hmm. Sikh police officers working for the British. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, sorry, that was that explanation was about as long as your answer. But that's just the whole, all that history immediately popped into my head as soon as I saw this one little sentence in the story that said there was the Sikh doorman. I thought, wait a minute, mm-hmm. what, what time are we in? But just mm-hmm. in in general, it's a story that makes you go, wait a minute, what's happening? It's a very kind mm-hmm. of dreamy story. It is, um, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so. I have a little question here about the dreamlike nature of the story. Um, it has a little kind of preface. I'll just read. So Suzhou River or Suzhou Creek, as it's often called in English, or Suzhou in Chinese. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite places in Shanghai. I was always going back to it. Um, like I said about FOMO, I always felt I was missing out mm-hmm. if I wasn't visiting somewhere regularly. So I was always going to, well, not always, but I was often going to Suzhou River. Uh, there was all sorts of nice things. Uh, there was art galleries, uh, bars. Some some of the bridges were just in very nice positions. Um, mm-hmm. You can understand why this character would be meeting a a, a girl there or trying to. Mm-hmm. And I was told that there's a, a movie, a Chinese movie, I should really watch. I think from the '90s called um, Suzhou. Suzhou Suzhou River, which was all about like a romantic story. I think about a guy trying to find a woman who he'd met once, trying to find her again. So I can like I can understand why the story with the kind of a magical or dreamy element would involve um, Suzhou River. Why do you think the author picked this location in Shanghai for this strange dream story? Why, why not somewhere else? Mm, um, I can think of. A- Two reasons, you know. Um, one is, I think, uh, a river is very important to a city, you know, or generally to the life. You know, water kind of to is it's the most important element for any form of life. And I think, you know, and uh, uh, and often, you know, a river provides the livelihood for so many peoples. And if you look at a Shanghai map, um, obviously, I think the obvious one is the Hongpu River. And mm. it's uh, the artery of the city. And it's often, you know, has all these uh, uh, kind of landmarks uh, uh, around the Hongpu River. But if you think about the Hongpu River, you know, uh, certainly the, the main sections and the, it's the functions, you 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 see one is the uh, it's uh, uh, mainly, you know, for shipbuilding and the ports. So uh, along the Huangpu River, that's the industries. And then um, you have the international trade. So you have the custom house, you have all the um, historical buildings around the bond, usually set up by international 
companies, trading houses. So that's what Hump River is, you know, for for the city. It brings kind of the heavy industries and the, the commerce. Whereas Suzhou Creek or Suzhou River, if you look at the map, it's a tiny kind of stream in comparison with Hongpu. But actually, it is along this river where people, you know, live around it, you know. You, uh, uh, and uh, I remember why he actually has written a novel called Fu Ping. It's all about um, the sort of working class. Uh, they um, sort of, they are the bargemen. So mm-hmm. they live on the boat and they live on the Suzhou re- uh, Creek. And uh, that's where actually a lot of the Shanghai um, rubbish and the, uh, are shipped out by the barges to the right. to the sea. So it is where the life or the day-to-day life happens. So it's not along the Hongfu River because mm. that's too big and, you know, whereas the households are built along the banks. But, of course, it's also have a lot of warehouses where, you know, uh, uh, they, they ship up and down, uh, especially to Suzhou. That's where the name comes from. And uh, so I think uh, they, they also choose uh, uh, Suzhou River. I think it's because it's about that individual young man's life and I think uh, it has more kind of relevance if it's close to the Suzhou River than any other place and uh, and I think you know his uh, bathtub can only flow on the uh, Suzhou Creek I guess if it's in the Hongpu River he'll be over strong right that's very true <laughs> yeah yeah so um yeah that's how mm. I think mm. I'm from, uh, well, I'm a kind of riverside person myself. I'm from Dundee, which sits mm-hmm. on the, the River Tay near where mm-hmm. it meets uh, the North Sea, I think. Where, anyway, where it goes off the east coast of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it, it is, is, it's totally different, again, from the Huangpu because it's, um, it's a much wider river. So Dun- and Dundee is a much smaller city, so it's just on one side. Um, but I've always liked being near waterways and all all my experience in china was was really nice in terms of being near waterways because um in a small town in Zhejiang there was mm-hmm. never you were never too far away from uh, uh, a river or water because it's jiangnan so there was a river or a canal that went through town there were other like water towns not far away and when I was visiting Hangzhou, there were um, there were canals, but there's also the the end of the really big one, the Grand Canal that goes all the way up mm. to Beijing, which I found mm. totally fascinating. And then in Shanghai, you had the Huangpu, you had uh, Suzhou Creek, and then again other small waterways in the city, serving I guess a little bit like like you said, like arteries. So I I, I loved it, and. Mm. When you mentioned the Huangpu, that reminded me of a kind of a dreamlike experience I had on on the Huangpu, um, where I came back from, had gone on an interesting uh, holiday up to Dongbei. I got uh, and then I went to Dandong to the China North Korea border. Got a boat to uh, Korea, went mm-hmm. through Korea, then got a boat from South Korea to uh, Shanghai, uh, not not Shanghai, uh, Japan. Totally different. Mm-hmm. And then the last trip of that holiday was. It was a little bit of a strange choice. I took a ferry back from Japan to Shanghai, which the mm-hmm. downside was it was two nights 
which is too long to be on your own on a boat. Not very mm-hmm. fun. But um, it, I got some amazing views uh, about early on in the journey. We got some fantastic views of the islands of Japan that we were passing in between. But uh, probably more strong in my memory is the memory of coming up the Huangpu River on the boat. It was one of the strangest things I've done in my life because you could see you could see the small zoomed in parts. You could see people's houses. You could see little small boats, but then you could see these massive industrial boats. You could see military boats. I guess there's a some kind of a naval base there um, near the um, uh, Baoshan area. So, like you said, it was more of the big scale, the epic scale, than the the local scale. But yeah, I, I don't really have a question there. I just really wanted yeah. to tell that story. Um, yeah, and I think you know the bridge they are going to meet is the Weibaiduqiao. I'm pretty right. sure of it, although it's been never made explicit. But the way they describe the bridge, you know, all the metal bits of it, and the where the because this story, you know, unlike the two stories. Previously, we discussed, you know, the story of Armin and Afon's lamp. Both it could just be anywhere in any part of Shanghai. It doesn't have a very specific location. And uh, whereas this one, I can more or less kind of picture in my head mm. uh, which direction he's heading to, which street he's walking on, and which he, uh, you know what he can see, what comes into the view. It's all kind of. All, are, are very very specific and uh, in, in these stories. So yeah, I, I just want to give the comment. I think mm. the meeting place they say is the Weibai Duqiao, which is where the Suzhou Creek meet the Huangpu River, and there's that like a historical bridge, probably uh, um, you know built in the twenties and the thirties. So uh, it's very significant in Shanghai history. Mm. There are some. As soon as you said you thought you knew the bridge, I, I got excited because I've gone up and down Suzhou Creek enough that I can remember a few of the bridges. And there's mm-hmm. there's more than one nice one. There's some very nice mm-hmm. ones, but the one you've just um, named for us there, the Wai Bai Du Chiao. And mm-hmm. thank you because I didn't know the Chinese name. I didn't know the English name either. But the Wai Bai Du Chiao. I think anyone who's walked all the way up the Bund, the Wai Tan in Shanghai, mm-hmm. should know this one. So how would I describe it? If you're walking up the Bund towards the big um, people's monument, and at, at the end, there's this kind of, yeah, like you said, a very kind of uh, 20th century style iron bridge that uh, is where the two rivers meet. And you're, if you're looking across um, the meeting of the rivers, you can see the Russian embassy building and lots of nice kind yes. of 1920s, 30s style buildings. It's right there. And yeah, more than once I've met people at that bridge. It's a a meeting place. (laughs) It's the meeting place, yes. Yeah, totally. Mm. Mm. Um, I guess we should mention the author, Tsai Jun. So I know his name because um, he's he's one of the authors that Amazon Crossing um, did for their Chinese to English translations. And in their Mm. list of Chinese books, uh, his book, the English name is The Child's Past Life. It's the only one that is like a horror or supernatural sort of story. So I've looked for information about him online. The most I could learn is that he's China's top horror writer. Um, As far as I'm aware, that's about all you know as well. But have have you had any, um, as the editor, did you have any contact with him or did you learn much about him? 
Um, I'm afraid no. Um, uh, I I must uh, you know sort of clarify because uh, this uh, book of Shanghai, the editors are uh, uh, two sort of colleagues and friends, and they are mm. uh, Jingli and uh, Dai uh, Chongrong. So um, so I think the kind of day to day interaction uh, and uh, is between them and uh, the authors. So. I don't have direct contact with Taiji, and right. uh, like you, you know, previously I've not even heard about him. But that just shows that I probably don't read that widely. I only read certain genres I enjoy. So yeah, no, I'm、mm. afraid I don't know much about him. That's okay.、Um, for any listeners who are well listening, obviously listeners are listening. But for any listeners who hear me and Karen wondering,、hmm, who, who is this guy? If you guys know, there are lots of ways you can give feedback to the show. I'll I'll list them all at the end of this episode. But、um, some of the best ways are Twitter, my Twitter at Angus Likes Words, and there is a a Discord where we have like a group chat, well, lots of different group chats going.、Uh, I'll tell you guys where you can get the link to that after the end of the show. But、um, let's move swiftly on to the last、mm. of our four stories. So Sujo、uh, Sujo River, that was kind of a Kind of a horror story, definitely a genre story, not a totally realistic one. And now we have another story like that、um, by an author who is pretty much generally known as one of the up-and-coming、uh, authors of Chinese sci-fi or sci-fi from China, because it's maybe better to just think of him as a sci-fi writer who is Chinese rather than inventing some imaginary genre called Chinese sci-fi. But anyway, it's Chen Qiufan, and his story is called State of Trance, and I mean, I was already kind of biased towards this story because Chinese sci-fi is something I'm really interested in. But this is definitely one of my one of my favorite stories from this book. I, this one really caught my attention as I was reading it.、Um, so I just wanted to ask: Have you found there's been a lot of interest in Chen Qiufan's contribution to this book? Because it seemed to me like there was, but then this is I'm probably very biased here and seeing what I'm used to seeing. Which is Chinese sci-fi? <laughs> yeah.、Um, actually,、uh, Chen Chufan came to、uh, our Manchester Literature Festival last year, so I met him in person. And、uh, because his English is very good, so I think you know, in in a way, I think you know, sort of all having the uh, uh, media interviews,、uh, it's all much easier. So I think、uh, recently he was、uh, on the BBC World Service.、Um, mm. Yeah, and、uh, and I think you know, obviously, as you said, science fiction, Chinese science fiction, really came into people's attention in the last couple of years. I think、uh, following the publication of the Three Body Problem,、um, I was meeting some friend, and、uh, someone just said, "Have you read the book?" I said, "Never heard about it." And、uh, then they say, "Oh, you know, in my company, everyone is reading about it." <laughs> and,、uh, so it's.、Uh, By that time, it suddenly sort of occurred to me. Okay, there's that interest, and that's why、uh, last year we brought two young science fiction writers to Manchester, and one of them, you、uh, probably you both interviewed them, Chen Chufan and Xia Jia. So yeah, I think you know, I'm sure、um, he's、uh, still very much kind of you know、uh, in the media, if you like, and、uh, which is a good thing, and.、Uh, Yeah, so we kind of we, I like him, and、uh, he's a very、uh, easygoing, personable. <laughs>、mm. 
yeah, he gave me a high five. Um, that was the last interaction I had with him. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, I, I told, I, I was, yes, I should give the, the context here. So I think their visit to Manchester is something that would link us by two or three degrees of separation because um, I ended up getting invited to the um, uh, conference on Chinese genre fiction that uh, Xia Jia and Chen Fan attended. And so that was a way I was able to introduce myself to them. And that's ultimately how they ended up being guests on my show. But mm-hmm. I guess the reason they were there is, if, I under, if I'm understanding correctly, is because you helped arrange their visit. Is that right? That's right. So were I, you at the conference in Leeds? Um, yes, I was at the conference in Leeds. I could have stuck around for the other events they did in Manchester, but um, yeah. I went to Ilkley instead to see Yang Ge mm. speak, partly so I could introduce myself to more offers, but partly so I didn't <laughs> annoy Xia Jia and Chen Fan following them around everywhere. <laughs> I see. Yes. Yeah. No, we, we worked with the Leeds uh, Center for uh, Chinese Writings. And uh, so when we decided to bring them over and we were saying, you know, it's good for them to visit a number of universities and do different activities. So, yeah, that's how it all came about. So mm. which works out quite well. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah. What a cool thing! Um, but anyway, let's um, let's talk about mm. state of trance. A uh, mm. so I've got a little bit of a, another intro to my question. I'm just going to read it off the page again. So uh, this story deals with the dissolving of human consciousness into. I think the uh, phrase primordial chaos is used in the story. If not, that's the sense I got. It's like some very primitive state. And I'm going to interrupt my question here because I learned about this kind of concept of primordial chaos when I was trying to type in uh, the Chinese for wanton into my phone, hundun, because mm. mm. my knowledge of Chinese tones is really bad. But if, you, if for some reason, if you try and put the, the Chinese for wanton, hundun, into my phone's <laughs> predictive text, it gives you the wrong hundun. It gives you the chaos hundun. <laughs> so I put that I don't know, I think it gave me the wrong meaning. I put it into my dictionary app and this word I thought that meant a kind of dumpling gave me this crazy <laughs> term <laughs> mythology. So that was kind of what was on my mind as I was reading the story. But anyway, I'll, I'll keep going with the question. Um, so mm. human consciousness is dissolving and there's a main character who's narrating the story and his way of dealing with this kind of end of the world situation is to go on one last desperate mission. But the mission isn't saving the world it's returning a book to shanghai Mm. library and Mm. from what i gathered it's not a random library in shanghai it's the shanghai library which is Mm. very central it's quite an old building it's a nice building Mm. it has its own metro stop in the city's underground system just Mm. doesn't go into library but it stops next door and it's named after Mm. it it's in uh, shuhui district i think in the old french Mm. concession but certainly in Mm. a very nice part of shuhui and Mm. wikipedia told me it's the second largest library in the world in in china and one of the biggest ones in the world so Mm. really i guess a significant place Mm. for his Mm. to be his destination and his mission Mm. but what i want to ask you as just a reader is why do you think that's this character's mission before his mind totally dissolves. Okay, yeah. I, I think, you know, my take on is, I think by sort of, you know, returning this book to the Shanghai Library, 
I think he raised a lot of questions about knowledge and knowledge in the form of book, and also the Chinese exam systems, and、mm-hmm. the, you know. We kind of revere knowledge, and you know,、uh, and traditionally, you know,、um, Chinese uh, uh, like uh, you know, you study so you can become a government official. So you have that imperial exam system. Yeah, and it still carries on. That's so ancient, I think, you know, right? That's a really old tradition. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, I'm just guessing, you know, whether that's his intention. He used the science fiction. Kind of for genre to really raise these age-old questions, you know how we see knowledge and especially knowledge in the form of books and、uh, um, how you know people because it talk about it, it certainly give me the impression that the repression of this knowledge kind of he used the word tomb like hierarchy. It's you know people. Uh, accumulate a lot of knowledge so they can get on the kind of all, the the ladder of the society, and then you know, does the knowledge define who you are? And、uh, I think there's a lot of philosophical questions, and uh, uh, and uh, you know, using a book and、uh, a library maybe enable him to bring out all these questions and.、Uh, um, In a subtle way, make us think. Especially if you know the world is coming to the end, what is the important things? <laughs> mm-hmm. And、uh, so, in that again, I feel it's very, very Chinese.、Um, you know,、uh, even science fiction probably is a very Western form, but the topic, the contents, or the subject he wants to deal with, it's.、Uh, Very reflecting the Chinese thinking. That's my take on. Yeah,、um, I do know that that's something he's interested in. I think, from what I gathered, some、uh, writers or people who talk about Chinese sci-fi think it's better if it doesn't try to tell some story about the country. It should just exist as its own thing. But I know Chen Xiufan is、uh, kind of interested in making. Doing something special with the sci-fi he writes, so that it can have its own tradition. Because I guess some of our listeners might not know the the, the kind of issue here is that sci-fi really is an an imported genre, and a lot of the sci-fi Chinese sci-fi fans read is it's like the the quote unquote the classics by a lot of American and other foreign sci-fi writers. And so th- this is fresh in my head because I recently、uh, joined a big Zoom meeting or Zoom. How can I say that? a Zoom event? It was hosted by Yale University, and it had、um, uh, authors attending were、um, Chen Chufan, Xia Jia, and Han Song, so a slightly older Chinese sci-fi writer. And there was some discussion of this idea of should Chinese or can can or should Chinese sci-fi writers try to make a special like a, a, a version of sci-fi that expresses something about China. And it seemed, from what I remember, the author who seemed most enthusiastic and had the most to say about that was Chen Xiufan. Although he was, he kind of stressed he's not sure exactly what a real Chinese Chinese sci-fi would look like, but、mm. it's kind of something he's playing with or trying to do as as an author.、Um, yeah. So I think you have a you're onto something there for sure.、Um, when you mentioned like the the focus on the form of a book and philosophical ideas, that's given me. 
an idea right away, which I guess is a, a sign the story is doing its work. It's making us think. So um, have you ever heard of the kind of philosophical concept, uh, the extended mind? Have you heard that phrase? No. <laughs> right. So it's it's a good philosophical concept because it's not uh, it's an easy one to understand. It's kind of quite common sense. So the idea of the extended mind is that humans, technically for thousands of years, humans have done things to kind of let their mind exist outside of their body. So, and it's a way to enhance ourselves or to outsource things that we would normally have to try hard on. So um, to give you some like low tech examples, making a shopping list is a way of extending your memory because you put something you need to remember into a form where it's fixed and you can't lose it. So your the philosophical idea is that by writing a shopping list, you've put your mind into the you've extended your mind onto the paper. Or mm. like another idea, having a calculator on your phone is mm. an extended mind because you maybe could do those calculations with your organic mind, but your mm. extended mind in the phone is more efficient. And just smartphones and smartphones in general are mm. if you apply the idea of an extended mind to them. They're crazy devices because they have a, mm. like a collective mind on the internet. Mm. But like, I guess if you applied that to books and maybe some of the things you're saying about the Chinese mm. tradition of having knowledge, not just stories, but knowledge in a book. Mm. If, if you know that your brain, if, you're, if your physical or biological mind is about to turn into you know nothing, if you're about to mm. vanish as a person, mm. it would make sense to try and I guess one way of looking at it is the simple idea that in our mm. writing, we live on mm. beyond our death or whatever. Mm. But maybe that philosophical way of looking at it would be our mind can survive whatever is happening mm. in the story. Mm. Or mm. I guess he, he, this, the book he's returning, he didn't write, but at least there's some human mind in one mm. way on that page mm. and he's bringing it back to this big collection. Mm. So yeah, there's a thought I had about five minutes ago based on oh, um, I see. Yes, inspired yes. by your answer. Um, yeah, I think, you know, that certainly I don't know true or full, you know, so UK intellects and there's the Chinese intellects, I think, have that strong desire, feel like uh, if anything they can live beyond their death, mm. it's the books, you know, they feel that will keep them alive, you know. But um, so, it, it, you know, most of educated people, if anything, you ask them, they will say, oh, I want to, you know, uh, have written a book or something. But sometimes I, I wonder, you know, with so many books published, and I think... Uh, um, whether you can still leave your traces beyond, beyond your death mm. through the books, that's questionable. It's not like before there's a limited number of books and, you know, in one way or another it get preserved. But now there's sort of a huge number of books and if it hasn't got impact, it's probably forgotten very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Just I, I, the observation and the comments and, uh, yeah. I think it's totally... Um, it's an it's a thought I've had. Like, gosh, I need to try really hard and write a book. Or if I can't write a book, I'll make this podcast, and then I can exist in some way on the internet forever. But then, you know, what if the service that is holding my files gets taken down? <laughs> and even if it doesn't, who's to say anyone will be listening to this in even just a few years? You know, possibly nobody. I guess I I really don't know if this would be a, an example of a cultural difference or just a difference or just a, something that's universal. But I think before I ever heard the idea of um, living forever in a book, I remember it was watching, 
watching the movie Troy, so based on Homer's Iliad, the story Ooh. of the Siege of Troy. So one of the oldest quote-unquote stories from Western culture. Uh, there's a scene where, um, again, this is not from the book, this is from the, the Hollywood version, where it's Brad Pitt, he's playing the hero Achilles, and I think it's his, is it his mother that tells him, look, you can live forever if you are a hero, if you become famous. So I guess in some ways, I I don't know if this is a Western perspective or just a different perspective with no mm-hmm. geographic location attached. But mm-hmm. yeah, being in a book might not be enough. You might want to be famous <laughs> if, if you want your name to survive. <laughs> I had a scary thought actually about this um, recently. I thought about my great grandparents. So I only ever knew one of them, my great grandmother. I think that's my mom's dad's mom. And I've heard a lot of stories in the family about my great-grandfather, who is my dad's dad's dad. Um, Mm. But that's two out of lots of great-grandparents who I know pretty much nothing about. So Mm. if even, and that's only three generations ago. Mm. So (laughs) I I don't mean to take our conversation too far away from the story or make things really Mm. dark, but (laughs) just a thought I had about, about that. About how yeah. maybe not like in I guess in this story things are dissolving very quickly, but maybe in mm-hmm. time everything like this just dissolves. Yeah, but also I think you know um, it's also he's raising the question of discovering yourself. You know, even at the very end, whether it's at this perilous moment, you know that kind of reflection and who you are is equally important and uh, that's uh, what goes through his mind when he was uh, on his way to the library and uh, mm. so yeah it, it's uh, I think humans are forever pursuing you know who we are and uh, uh, what's the purpose and uh, so I think uh, again in, in this particular story I find um, those big questions is uh, uh, certainly, you know, to my mind, is being raised. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's very easy to um, feel like you're on the side of the the main character because his his mission is definitely a mission anyone would identify with. Just because it's like you said, it's a very human thing to do to just keep going, trying to do something meaningful, even when all the odds are against you. Totally. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all the questions I've got about our four stories discussed in great depth. I think we've just, uh, with Shanghai as a starting point, we've talked about so many, so many myriad things, everything from um, management of waste to the very first shops and like the very first market economy that China saw. We've talked about meeting places in the city and we've gone all the way to how we can live forever in, in, in books. So <laughs> all sorts of destinations I didn't quite expect, which is I think that's appropriate for Shanghai because Shanghai, my experience in Shanghai anyway, there's all sorts of things waiting for you that you would never expect. So um, you, you told us earlier you were staying in Shanghai in the 80s. Mm. So if, if you don't mind me asking, can I ask um, how that came about? But also over time, like how could you describe the connection that you built up with Shanghai and how do you feel about mm. it now? Mm. Yeah, um, so I... I grown up in Hangzhou, which is not far from Shanghai, but, but I went to Shanghai to do my university degrees. So that's how I came to live and study in Shanghai. And that is in the early 1980s. So at that time, um, 
you know, Shanghai is still kind of closed in the sense because the restriction of movement, you know, we have a hukou, household um, sort of resident card. So mm-hmm. basically, uh, not like now, uh, anyone can come in and find a job to work in Shanghai except university students you come from different part of the country and you study there and i think the very important thing is if you go to shops and if you don't speak shanghai dialect you don't get service because right you know it's the state economy and the people kind of they not that kind of at least on the surface not so welcoming to kind of people because uh, uh um you know, they generally think uh, Shanghai is uh, more industrialized and much more kind of sophisticated. So anyone from outside Shanghai, they call it uh, um, like a country pumpkins. And uh, so I think the first thing we learned is to uh, learn Shanghai dialect. And uh, luckily, you know, in, in our university dormitory, we've, we've got seven people share a room. And uh, I think... Uh, three from Shanghai and the rest are from like Jiangsu and the Zhejiang, but they all encourage us to, to learn the language. And I think uh, that definitely put us in a good position to kind of feel more part of the Shanghai. So, so I've lived there for 15 years uh, before I moved to the UK. So it is very important because that's uh, when I went to the university, formed a lot of friendship, had my first jobs, got married and uh, yeah, started my family. So that's why um, I feel very, very close to the city. And the most important, I speak the dialect. So you feel more part of the city. Right. Um, yeah, so so that's my connection. But, but since I came to the UK, I still go back uh, uh, every year and I still got families and uh, friends who I meet and uh, colleagues former colleagues so yeah fantastic um that's reminded me i think i only off the top of my head i only remember two things in shanghainese one is uh nong hao instead of ni hao mm. and mm. um zigawe instead of shu Hui, the area mm. i used to work in and i i vaguely remember there was one bus i rode um from south the south of shu Hui, the school i was working at up into the center it, the bus was going to shu Hui, and i think the the bus was speaking in three languages it was speaking in um like the the, the bus speaker the tanoi system it had mm. putonghua as so standard mandarin it had english and i'm mm. pretty certain it also had shanghainese but mm. i only noticed that if i was listening for it if i didn't listen for it it just sounded like you know chinese that i wasn't paying attention to but yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's fascinating at least for an outsider i was amazed but i never made any efforts to to learn the Shanghainese. Have you is your Shanghainese still there or is has it faded a bit over time? Uh I think it's still there. I think I need kind of environment, you know, if someone speak the dialect and then, you know, you can go into the conversation. Yeah. So mm. things is still very much there. But even Shanghai dialect has evolved, you know, since my time. So now the young people who speak Shanghai dialect speak some slightly different ones, I think. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I guess like any language, it's constantly evolving, new vocabulary, new accent, because it all depends on 
where the people coming from. I think, you know, they, they will change the accent or the use of the words. And uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, but, but, you know, talking to my former colleagues and uh, I think, uh, yeah, we all speak the same language. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember I mentioned that colleague before who was from the, the quite old Shanghai family. Mm-hmm. And so he, he spoke good English, um, speaking to students uh, or staff, he would speak Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes you'd hear him on the phone, I guess, just talking mm-hmm. to his, his, his bros, I guess, or his, his family maybe. And he would mm-hmm. use the Shanghainese. And at least to my ears, I was like, whoa, this mm-hmm. is actually really different from Mandarin. This is, mm-hmm. I can only mm-hmm. barely recognize some of the, the sounds. But yeah, um, I, that question doesn't go anywhere. Just a, a memory that sprung to my head. Um, so I, I mentioned about Sujo uh, Creek, Sujo River, that that story was a fun one for me because that's a place that was not just a place I remember, but one of my um, one of my favorite places in Shanghai, which is a city with so many great places. It's special that somewhere should be up in your favorites. Uh, so I want to ask you: Did did any of these stories take you back to your favorite places, as well as Sujo um, Sujo Creek? And what are those favorite places? Mm. I must admit, you know, uh, Suzhou River, not some place I go regularly. I remember going to the post office, you know, uh, on, if you've ever been walking on the Suzhou Creek and there's that famous post office. And I remember just before I came to the UK, if you want to post anything overseas, you go to that big post oh, office. Wow. And, uh, yeah, but... You know, it's not a, a, an area I go regularly, but about three years ago, I just, my hobby is walking. So I just decided to walk a, quite a big section of it. And I noticed the changes and unbelievable. It, it is very nice, you know, kind of, mm. they have a walkway. So basically you can walk along uh, all the way to the bond. And uh, yeah. so that's probably my sort of a very recent experience. So in terms of favorite places or places I have a regular activity and I know most well is Nanjing Xilu. So, oh, yeah. so basically from Chengdu Lu, where the highways, you know, the sort of Nanbei uh, Gaojia, so it's the south to the north, which cut Chengdu Lu from that all the way to Jing'an Si, Jing'an Temple. Mm. So that's the uh, section where um, you know um, I have regular activities and uh, it's partially because my uncle lived there and I when I was at university I visit them every week you know it's more like uh, my um, weekend sort of home and uh, so my uncle and aunt they have died but my cousin still lives in the same house it's a 1930s apartment oh, wow. so it's it's really nice and, uh, um, you know, like a Sanxi Ru, Sanxi. Mm. Yeah, there are yes. lots of little shops and, uh, you know, clothes shops and food stores. And uh, so that's uh, where a lot of, uh, uh, probably my favorite bits. It's partially because of similarity, partly of reminiscence. You know, I spent my 20s, 30s there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, that that walkway on Sujo Creek you described—that's exactly the thing I like to do. 
walk walk along that one. Mm. And oh yes, the other thing that you that I remembered there. Um, so I have happy memories of Jingan Si, Jingan Temple, for mm. quite different reasons. Um, I used to go to a writer's workshop that was uh, held in one of the um, one of the buildings just near Jingan Temple, Jingan Si, mm. and mm. so I have happy memories of going to the workshop and meeting friends. But what I would often do was show up early, and because just opposite Jingan uh, Temple, there's the Jingan Gongyuan Jingan park and this is going to sound very stupid and my um american friends thought this was very stupid because in in that park there's a dunkin donuts and (laughs) to an american that's like not an exciting thing that's a very normal shop but um it's something i'd only ever seen in like berlin because there's a lot of dunkin donuts in berlin we don't really have basically we have none in the uk and one of my favorite things in the world is a donut with icing on top and i see (laughs) yeah and that particular Dunkin' Donuts was a, a a place where you could get quite nice donuts in Shanghai, and it was a lovely place to just sit. Um, you could sit out the front, out the back, or inside, and mm. have very happy memories sitting in that donut shop um, before <laughs> crossing the road just near the temple to go to the, mm. the workshop. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. Um, but but do you know that the Jing'an Temple used to be the international cemetery? The the park, right? Yeah. Yeah, not I did. The, yeah, not the park. Uh, sorry, not the temple, the park. Mm. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, I think I might have learned that one um, when I was quite mm. new in Shanghai and trying to explore. I found some lists um, and, and walks, and the walks mm. took me to fantastic places. And one of them, it, it wasn't a list, it wasn't a walk, sorry, but it was a list of places you could visit. And it was like mm. haunted or spooky places in Shanghai and some of the stories were really quite dark so um, one of them was a place actually very near the school the the Longhua um, Martyrs Cemetery where um, a lot of the victims of the Kuomintang um, were executed so that was one of them and another one was the uh, the Jing'an uh, Jing'an Park, because although mm. it's not, I think it's not clearly signposted anywhere. Yeah, it's built on mm. top of the the foreigners' cemetery. So, of course, the article said something silly like maybe you'll see um, some the ghost of some. Ghost. <laughs> yeah, no, it it is nice. The kind of in the city, you have that green park and the yes, mm. yeah, and some very cute cats in that park too, if I remember correctly. Mm. Mm. But yeah, um, I I would love to make a five-hour podcast talking about all my favorite places in shanghai but unfortunately that's this is a a books podcast so i can't do that um so we should just keep going um so here's a couple of miscellaneous questions i've tried to ask these every episode um the first one is about like a word of the day could you recommend our listeners a word of the day something that maybe captures something from one of our stories or just something about shanghai in general Mm, mm. Yeah, um, I, I, I think, you know, I mentioned um, the story of Armin, Wang Zhanghe, the use of language, especially mm. uh, Shanghai dialect. And uh, I think um, that might be the only Chinese character appeared in the whole book. It's, um, it's called Shanghai means I think it's been translated as a grasping the rubbish, which we had a lot of debate about whether which verb to use, you know, basically you, you, you clasp or 
collect the rubbish. But in Shanghai dialects, it's called trash. <laughs> right. Can Can you、yeah. say that slowly so I can repeat it? Trash. Trash. Uh, trash. Uh, trash. Okay.、Mm. And is there a way to say that in、uh, like standard Mandarin, or does that one only exist in like? Is there no? I think to... it's only exist in Shanghai dialect. It's、right. a very vivid kind of both the sound and action and the, yeah.、Um, And I think it's probably the most difficult word to translate. You know,、mm. or, or I've seen so many different versions of translating that phrase, and、right. then、um, everyone has probably their reason why it should be. And、uh, I think finally we go for grasping because that's when they picked up arming as a person from the、mm. rubbish bin. So if you're using a clasping or other verb, that's just not. Forceful enough, you know, where he uses the grasping, so you, you grasp a person from the rubbish bin. But yeah, that that will、right. be my my word of the story. <laughs> That's a a good choice.、Um, after we're done, I might message you on WeChat to see if there's a way I can get it into my show notes because normally it's easy for me.、Um, if the if the guest will say a word, no problem. I can usually write the. Pinyin and get the characters myself.、Mm. I put them in Google Translate. It gives me the pinyin with the correct tones, no problem. And then the English translation, no problem. But this time, I guess I'll have to try a little bit、um, harder, make a bit more effort to see if we can get this Shanghainese in the show notes. But don't worry, we'll figure that out. Here's the next silly question:、uh, If Shanghai was a drink, or if this book was a drink, what kind of drink do you think it would be? I must admit, I know very little about drinks. You know, whether it's the names or the taste of it. So when、mm. I think about this question, say,、mm, I mean, I probably go for something. You know, a rice wine.、Mm, that sounds、um, sensible. Yeah, it it, it it's、uh, kind of you know, if I think of Shanghai, it, it's easier to come up with a dish. You know,、mm. like a. Rather than a drink, and、uh, you know, and、uh, if it has to be a dish, then I will say it's a braised pork, hong shao rou, and yeah, and and usually the Chinese,、uh, the Shanghai cooking, traditional Shanghai cooking, use a lot of soy sauce and the white rice wine,、mm. and it's all very dark color until sort of you know. The overseas style hai pei, just uh, uh, sort of Shanghai style of cooking, which take on a lot of the international elements of it, then it can look very different. But if you talk about the very local Shanghai cooking, they use a lot of dark soy sauce and the rice wine. So if I have to name a drink after.、Um, Uh, for Shanghai, I,、uh, and that's probably the drink I'm familiar with. Again, it's very warm. It's a bit like a you know dark color, but it it, it certainly emit that kind of warmth,、uh, mm. which you will probably need. And that's how I can think of. Right, that makes sense to me. Is that rice wine? Do you mean、um, Huangjiao, or is it a different?、Uh, wine? Yeah, Huangjiao. Huang- Oh, cool!、Uh, I once,、um, I think, first time I came back from、uh, China from small town Doxing, I brought some some baijiu with me, and I 
tried giving it to my dad and also my stepdad and they're both like oh like they i think my, my dad had tried it before but they were like shocked by how strong it was but at least they could understand it because they had other similar spirits in their lives like vodka mm. but the next time i uh, i did bring back a little bit of baijiu but i also brought back some huangjiu and they mm. were i guess much more curious about the huangjiu because it's mm. um more very different yeah totally different and different from totally anything different. they had before mm-hmm. and um yeah and i think you know shanghai and Jiangnan, uh we kind of our main staple food is rice so i think you know the rice wine is very unique in the region kind of um yeah it's it's you know um i guess uh, yeah and it's also daily necessity (laughs) Mm, right in our cooking yes so it's uh it is for drinking but it's also for um daily cooking and uh, you always put white uh rice wine and uh yeah but mm. it's very different i have friends who came to hangzhou with me and uh, i serve them all different chinese drinks i think they found rice wine is probably the hardest to right. comprehend you know sort of mm or even to like it. And uh, I wouldn't want to say Chinese culture is inaccessible, but certainly it takes a long time to kind of appreciate all the kind of, you know, different flavors. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, um, how I think. I think, yeah, it matches my experience, like coming to China as a foreigner, some things were they're globalized, I'm already familiar with mm. them, no problem. Other things, they are specific to China or Asia, but they make they, there's nothing too strange for me about them, so I could like get my head around them. So I'm trying to think, can I quickly think of an example? Well, maybe like, like Baijiu, okay, you can't mm. really get it in the UK, but I understand the concept of a very strong spirit. And then there's other things that take a little bit more time to appreciate. Um, can I think of an example? Um, maybe not quickly. Um, you mentioned high pie, and um, that's reminded me of two little stories. So about high pie and um, Hong Shao Rou, there was a series of um, cooking videos I watched one time. It was published by Vice, and it was um, about this guy Eddie Huang, who's uh, he's a Chinese American, and he's mm. um, I think he's involved in making. Um, like a TV drama fresh off the boat these days about uh, immigrant families. But before that, he was like a kind of like a TV or online chef, uh, focusing, I think, mostly on Chinese food. And he did a series where he visited Shanghai and he did like mostly visited local chefs to see what they were doing. And one of the things he did was do like a cooking battle. So the challenge was he he had to make some Hong Shao Rou and this Shanghai chef had to make some Hong Shao Rou. And so the Shanghai mm-hmm. chef took like the standard approach and Eddie Huang cooked his, instead of Huang Jiu, he used Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's an interesting example. And the result? Uh, <laughs> it turned out good, but he wasn't as good as the Hong Shao Rou master. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently it did taste okay. And uh, when you were you were talking about um, Huangzhou, I actually have a Huangzhou kind of high pie story. This one's from Moganshan. Um, in my first year in China, I was out there in that small town, and I didn't have many connections to other foreign other foreigners. Mm. But there was this um, English lady who lived outside of the town on Moganshan, mm. and I think she said, "Do are you doing anything with your Christmas?" 
And I said, no, there's nothing I can do really. I could maybe go to Hangzhou. And she said, well, come on over. Um, we can do something Christmassy. And um, she decided she was going to make mince pies. So like a very British kind of Christmas tradition. And she was just using her knowledge uh, to get as many of the ingredients as she could. But sometimes the, 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 the classical ingredient wasn't there, so she needed to improvise. So um, a mince pie, I, I guess you're familiar with mince pies, like the, the inside isn't, isn't really a mince. It's not really meat. It's like sweetened fruit and stuff. So in a traditional recipe, you need to put some brandy on it. But she was on this mountain, Mogan so there's no brandy. But um, her solution was to get some Huangjiao and put that on instead. And again, it, it worked pretty nicely. Very so, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's versatile. That's good. <laughs> handy thing to know if you're ever on a mountain and you want to make mince pies. So there's our miscellaneous questions all done. Now we're on to like kind of just our, our final questions before we say goodbye. Um, so I want to ask you, what are you reading just now? And... Mm. Also, are there any books, they could be Chinese or they don't have to be Chinese, mm. that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think um, if people are interested in Shanghai and uh, keep on reading stories about Shanghai, um, I would recommend the In- Inspector Chen Mysteries. Mm. Um, because I myself a crime thriller fan, which is uh, no big deal, and uh, I'm always looking for um, crime stories about uh, Shanghai or China. There are not many, especially written in English. Or uh, and uh, so I happen to sort of come across Chu uh, Xiaolong, uh, who is uh, uh, based in America, but all his Inspector Chen stories happen in Shanghai. And what I particularly like is uh, it's uh, sort of kind of contemporary. So it's uh, because uh, often, you know, historical and uh, which is important is good. But I think, you know, uh, his stories is about uh, sort of, you know, contemporary China, uh, contemporary Shanghai, and the, the legal systems and the, you know so it's a it's a good window to look the changes in Shanghai and mm. because it's a series so he keep producing books and that's what I enjoy and I hope uh, um, other people would enjoy as well um, I'm also not surprised uh, a big fan of Amy Tan so I read right. uh, her book and uh, I really want to bring her to Manchester someday but I know she's very um, how how can I put it? You know, it's not cheap to bring her over. So I think, no. uh, um, yeah. So um, I think you know, the, she she is also from Shanghai. I um, and uh, I think what she writes about reflect a lot of the common kind of uh, feelings about uh, uh, kind of Chinese immigrants living in you know whether in the United States or. Uh, uh, UK, so I think uh, I feel I can relate to, resonant to, and uh, um, then I think uh, in terms of my current reading, I read all sorts of things, uh, and uh, my I recently finished a book uh, called The Divide um, by Alan Akbon. Uh He's a playwright, and I really enjoy his plays. And this is his first book, his first book. Um, published when he's 80 so that probably you know um just shows at any age you can write a book 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. Thanks for that. Uh, um, um, it's all just a very random bit. Oh, that's cool. All, all recommendations are useful. Um, I wonder, I'm, I'm asking this because this is a book I previously covered on the show. Have you read any of Chen Sejin's um, crime books? Because he's a Hangzhou writer. Who, oh, I think he's no. Sick. Right. So, so glad you recommend it. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, so I apologize if I'm not doing the tones correctly, but uh, Chen Sejin. So Chen and Zijin, Z-I. Jin, J-I-N. Uh, okay. the, re- the reason I stumbled across this, it's because of the um, the conference in Leeds I went to where Chen Fan mm-hmm. and Xia Jia were. I, uh, for part of it, I was sat next to the translator, Michelle Dieter. And I think near the end, she just passed me this book, uh, The Untouched Crime. Um, oh, if, if, I, if my Mandarin was better, I would remember the the, the Chinese title. There's a Chinese TV show that I'll keep talking. But as I'm talking, I'm going to Google this book so that I can get the Chinese name up. But basically, he's a Chinese writer living in Hangzhou, near the kind of university area, I believe. And he sets his stories there. I think in in the English, it says it's in Hangzhou. I think in the Chinese, it's called H-City or something. It's kept unspecified. But um, his book, The Untouched Crime, is one of the books that Amazon Crossing um, brought into English with Michelle Michelle Dieter translating it. Aha, now I've I've brought up my own episode on it because I know it has the... Oh, oh there's my own voice. Because uh, I know it has the pinion title. Info. Wu Wu Zheng Zhizui. Wu Zheng Zhizui. The Untouched Crime. Oh, Wu Zheng Zhizui. Yeah, so okay. yeah. <laughs> Good, uh, thank you. And uh, um, yes, I'm very excited. I hope... Uh, he has, uh, I mean, I guess this is uh, a book translated, but he must have all yeah. um, There's an written original other Chinese too. books. And yes, yeah, very good. And uh, I look forward to reading it. And I know Michelle quite well. And uh, so I didn't realize she never mentioned she translated that book. And uh, mm. so it must be quite recent. Yeah, if it's last year, then yeah, I, I think um, I think most of Amazon Crossing's Chinese books are from not too long ago. But yeah, mm. this is one of them, and yeah, I, I believe he does have quite a few that are untranslated. And as as I mentioned, there's there's a TV show, but the TV show you might not well, it is it's still got the crime element, but they shifted the setting from Hangzhou to Dongbei in one of the cities in the northeast. Mm. Maybe they they wanted the kind of cold setting i don't know <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. so that's my kind of a dream someday i will write a crime thriller at right. age of 80 yeah it's <laughs> a, a good thing to do with your um your 80th yeah. year i guess okay mm. last question of all uh, or mm. at least the last question i have on the paper um, do you want to take the chance to promote any projects or platforms beyond just the Book of Shanghai? Um, I think this book can sort of, you know, as a project kind of uh, come to fruition. It's, uh, yes, you know, I, I have that passion. and uh, But also I think uh, uh, Confucius Institute, you know, we promote uh, our language and culture through uh, all sorts of art forms and the literature is a really important uh, form, I think, among all the uh, uh, forms that we uh, sort of 
use. And so I, yeah, I really just, uh, you know, feel we can continue to do this work um, uh, through the Confucius Institute because uh, I actually uh, visit um, uh, St. Petersburg Confucius Institute. They have brought a lot of Chinese short story collections to Russian language. Oh, fantastic. And uh, they, they actually done the Kunming They've done lots of um, sort of, you know, not necessarily big cities, but like a regions. And uh, so, um, yes, uh, uh, I know the um, professor who works with uh, Chinese Writers Association. I think that's where he sourced all these uh, writers and short stories. And uh, so, um, you know, they've done some fantastic work. And uh, so I think that's uh, probably I would like to just uh, promote and uh, we also the Manchester Confucius Institute we also have a Twitter and uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram so I think mm. uh, it would be good you know once you have this uh, on your social media we can uh, cross promoting it absolutely yeah and for <laughs> listeners I'll put links to all the Manchester Confucius Institute's uh, Facebook Twitter Instagram in the show notes so in, in, in the episode description for you guys for your convenience, I guess. And I should just, if I can, just throw in myself. Um, I, in my first year back in the UK, um, when I was in Edinburgh studying my publishing master's, I was looking for a place to um, do a little bit of kind of not too heavy, but useful study of Chinese because I was doing part-time job and my uh, and my studies. And the best place I could find was the Confucius Institute because they were offering a weekly free, like a conversation club. And yeah, um, I ended up actually being the only student who was attending. So I had to let them know if I could make it or not because otherwise there would be no class. But um, the teachers, or the teacher was always there, always happy to chat. And yeah, it was just a very positive experience I had. So that was that was the Edinburgh one. Um, that's the only one I've I visited, but it was it was a really great. I learned I learned well. I learned a little bit more Chinese, and I preserved the Chinese I already have. If that makes sense, it's kind of stopped it from yeah, fading away. Yeah, it's very good. It's interesting um, because one of the Shanghai editors, Dai Chongrong, uh, she's the Chinese director at uh, Edinburgh Confucius Institute. Oh. So, <laughs> she, she was the director. I just sort of randomly she sent out email and uh, and I thought, oh, she's might be the potential person I can work with. And I don't know her personally. I just call her, and uh, that's how the book came about. So it's uh, kind of you know oh. uh, the Confucius Institute, and uh, she was at Edinburgh for two years, and uh, so we only met once in Sheffield, very briefly. And I give her the Tokyo book. I say, this is the format we're going to follow and think about it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it's all the connections. Yes. So uh, you're right. It's the pink cover of Tokyo book. And the Ra told me so far of all the city series, Tokyo is probably, you know, the most popular one. And I said to him, I said, Shanghai will be the one on the same part, if not more popular, I mm. hope, you know, in terms of readership, because I think both Tokyo and Shanghai hold people's fascination. Definitely. They exist. In, yeah. there, there's mm. a, a Scottish author I really like um, called Alistair Gray, and he his most famous book is called Lanark, and it, it's set in Glasgow. And mm. 
it's he's this guy he's a bit of a well he is he's a scottish nationalist so it's mm. not the prime focus of the book but one of the themes it's about like people's identity as scottish or even as glaswegians living in the city of glasgow and one mm. of the characters says that the problem facing uh, scotland or scottish people is that or at least maybe glasgow because edinburgh is a special case but for glasgow and most of the other scottish cities they aren't places where people imagine living the places which are easiest to feel the most proud of or are the mm. most special are the places that other people imagine living so i mean i guess maybe edinburgh in scotland has this romantic image or a literary image but as soon as you see that um that character's dialogue you immediately know what what he's talking about and it would it would be very cool if um, Shanghai comes to exist in the kind of world imagination in the same way Tokyo does. I think certainly. I don't see why not. It is a magical city. So it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think on that note, I'll, I'll just say thanks for coming on the show and having such a fantastic chat and giving such great answers to these questions. And thanks for letting me dredge up some of my memories of Shanghai because they're pretty much all amazing memories. <laughs> Good, good. Thank you for having me on. So thank you once again to Karen Wang. That really was a great chat and it was lovely to take a little mental journey back along the streets and shukuman and elevated roads of Shanghai. Really, that was, a, that was nice. A little piece of time travel for me and maybe anyone else uh, listening who's been to Shanghai but isn't there right now. And a nice piece of self-indulgence, I guess, for everyone who is listening there right now so there's nothing else for me to say except do the plugs for the show so um if you want to keep up with the show on social media and keep up with me i guess on social media there are places you can do that on twitter you can go to at angus likes words that's my kind of personal account but basically everything i tweet is uh, related to the show or to chinese uh, fiction if you're an Instagram user, the show has its own Instagram account. It's at Trichofic. That's also a good way to keep up with the show. I try to share cool Chinese literature related things I see to like the little, little uh, story there. You can message me in the old Instagram DMs. It's a, a fun place to be, I would say. If you'd like to support the show materially, which means help me fund my tea addiction, my crippling tea addiction and also help support uh well help support me pay the hosting fees for the show there's two places that you can do that one is the patreon now the uh pro of patreon for you is that you get access to hours and hours of bonus content i've got episodes queued up that will come out week by week pretty much i'm finding more time to put into that which is good news for us all uh, uh, so that's the pro for you, is the bonus content. The pro for me is that you can give a monthly contribution, which obviously, that's, that's a good, <laughs> it's money. Money's good for me. If you'd like to give a one-off contribution, if you don't like the idea of giving me money every month, if you'd rather just, proverbially speaking, buy me a coffee, well then you can go to buymeacoffee.com and you can give a one-off contribution. So both those places, just put in the website's URL and then slash trichofic on the end, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. Both those links will be in the show notes. So yeah, that's how to support the show with money, but here's an even better way, spreading the word. I really do think this is the best thing you can do. So if you know someone who might like this podcast, maybe they like books, 
Maybe they like books from Asia. Maybe they like books from China. Maybe they're interested in China. Maybe they just like podcasts. Maybe they like insane discussions about how to outlive death via books. Maybe they like Shanghai. Maybe they like Chinese sci-fi, and they'll only listen to the Chinese sci-fi episodes. Perfectly reasonable.、Uh, whatever the case, you should tell them. Tell your teachers. Tell your friends. Tell your disintegrating librarian, and tell your fruit shop, your local fruit shop vendor. Tell all those people if you happen to have them. If you don't have them, then it's a problem easily solved. Just go to Shanghai. Until you do, 再见。